This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. The New England Wildflower Society conserves native plants in the wild and encourages gardeners and landscape professionals to choose natives when they plant outdoor spaces, particularly plants grown from local seeds harvested sustainably in the wild. Their mission is to conserve and promote the region's native plants to ensure healthy, biologically diverse landscapes. With more than a century of successful habitat restoration, scientific research, and public education dedicated to native plants, the New England Wildflower Society is the established leader in the region and an expert resource for professionals in other parts of the country and the world. The Society is based at Garden in the Woods, a renowned native plant botanic garden in Framingham, Massachusetts. The garden attracts visitors from all over the world. From this base, 25 staff members and more than 700 volunteers work throughout New England to monitor and protect rare and endangered plants, collect and bank seeds for biological diversity, control invasive species, conduct research, and educate the public. The society also operates a native plant nursery at Nasami Farm in western Massachusetts and owns seven native plant sanctuaries in Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont, six of which are open to the public. Today, we're joined on Cultivating Place by Mark Richardson and Dan Jaffe of the New England Wildflower Society's Garden in the Woods Botanic Garden. They're here to speak with us more about the history and mission of the Society, as well as several new outreach initiatives, Pollinate New England, and their new book, Native Plants for New England Gardens. While this is a regionally-based organization, they are a model for lessons that native plant and ecological gardening enthusiasts can all learn from. Mark and Dan join us today from the studios of WGBH in Boston. Welcome, Dan and Mark. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. So I'd like to start with you, Dan, and get a sense from you for listeners who may not be familiar with the society's headquarters at their garden in the woods. What does the garden in the woods look like and feel like right now as we enter summer? Well, Garden in the Woods is a 45-acre botanical garden. It's, um, as you said, it's the headquarters of New England Wildflower Society, but but at its kind of heart, it's truly a botanical garden. Um, and we, we try very hard to make it a kind of all-season garden. It's kind of interesting how different parts of the garden really shine at different times of year. Um, for example, in, in spring, the woodland garden is by far the place to be. It is full of, you know, bright colors and beautiful flowers, and everything is kind of, you know, really exciting. Um, as summer comes on, right about now, the woodland garden becomes more of a textural garden, and our meadow really comes to life. Um, the meadow, which may not look quite as much, you know, in spring, is is really on fire right now. Um, there are tons of different flowers in bloom right now. You go down there, and you just hear the bees buzzing and see the butterflies flying around, and um, it's the meadow's getting pretty tall, so you don't actually see what is causing all the ruffling underneath. You just see grasses and shrubs and stuff that are just kind of shaking as a chipmunk runs underneath them, or maybe one of our many rabbits or, or something else kind of in there. Um, it's probably the most lively spot at the moment. Um, that being said, our lily pond looks pretty good right now, too. The water lilies have started blooming, and there's, there's a lot going down. Well, there's a lot going on in the garden. It's a good place. 
Are there distinct areas to the garden? So as we would enter, would we go to different ecological areas within the garden? Sure thing. So um, the garden used to kind of be a little bit more of just a, I think the probably best way to put it would be a, a hodgepodge of a garden. And we recently kind of underwent a, a master planning process that has allowed us to really start kind of putting things into more concise ecotones and kind of, you know, landscape characters. Um, so now you'll find spots like, um, you know, we used to have this tiny little acid slope next to the Tufa Garden, which is like an alkaline area. And instead, things are now expanding into broader kind of characters. So we've got this this pond area, which represents kind of wetland environments in New England and really shows off a lot of different wetland species. Um, and then when you get into our meadow, for example, it's very representative of New England meadows. And it's a much broader and expansive sort of meadow than it used to be. So instead of these little kind of stamps, it's, it's really more of a, a kind of whole space. Um, and that meadow kind of bleeds into a coastal sand plain garden, which is very representative of, you know, the coastal uh, Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, Cape Cod, that sort of kind of coastal Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, you know, that sort of area. Um, so as you kind of move through Garden in the Woods, you see these representations of different environments that you could find throughout this whole region. We're getting into some of the things you cover beautifully in the book when you start mentioning things like ecotones and regional similarities across ecological zones rather than political boundaries. But I am getting us ahead of ourselves. Dan, as the official propagator and the photographer for the book, and Mark as the director of the gardens, I would like to go back to a little bit of history so that we build context for people to understand a little bit more. Give us a little bit of each of your individual histories in this work, and then we'll move to some of the history of the New England Wildflower Society, which is long and rich. Let's start with you, Dan, since we were already speaking with you, and then we'll move to Mark in terms of personal history. All right. Um, well, I think to actually, ironically enough, to some extent, me and Mark have a similar sort of background in, into how we came, although there's definitely some detail differences. Um, I kind of got into where I'm at now from a, a direct kind of traditional horticulture point of view. I was living up in Maine and decided I just couldn't handle working in a cubicle, and I, I took a job at a local nursery. Um, at the time, I knew very little about plants other than the fact that I liked green things and growing things, and that was about as detailed as I'd got. Um, and I was working at a nursery where I was just the bag boy. Um, people would go into the nursery, you know, order 10 bags of compost. They'd come out, give me a little ticket. I'd load them into their cars. And that was kind of the beginnings for me. Um, and from there, I got onto some landscape crews, started working with, you know, plants. At this point, I was starting to get to know plants, but didn't really have much of a great sense of the kind of ecological value that has become such a passion for me now. But at, at one point, I remember just kind of sitting on a, a landscape and, and looking at this spot where we had you know, planted this garden the year before, um, and it was right across the road from this kind of very wild, dilapidated house that pretty much had a meadow in front of it, although it was mostly just a lawn that no one had ever mowed that had random things growing in it. And I'm looking at this very heavily cultivated, and I would easily say tacky garden that we had installed that we were just adding new mulch to, and I realized there was not a bee or a butterfly in sight, but across the, like, way, where no one was doing anything, the place was abuzz with life. And that was a little bit of a turning point for me. I, I decided gardens needed to be a little more than just pretty. Um, they, they had mm. to kind of be alive, and I wanted to see things interacting with them. 
and that got me into a, a passion for kind of ecological sort of horticulture. Um, ended up coming with a, a change in my, um, my my you know college career. I switched majors. Ended up majoring in botany right around that time. Working at a nursery where I I set up a, a native plant zone and and kind of started really getting heavily into this kind of ecological interactions. Eventually mm -hmm. led me to an internship at Garden in the Woods, which turned into a job and has since bloomed into a career. And what was supposed to be a, a six month stint at the garden turned into an eight year job and I haven't left yet. <laughs> so what year would you have gone to Garden in the Woods as an intern initially? 2010, I think, if I'm remembering this okay. right. So Mark, <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your background and your history to becoming the director there at Garden in the Woods. Sure, yeah. Like like Dan mentioned, we have sort of a similar, uh, at least a similar start to our um, careers in horticulture. I went to University of Vermont for a couple of years, and I was studying environmental science and, and really, I guess, getting frustrated by a lot of doom and gloom without a whole lot of solution. And I kind of fell into taking some horticulture courses with a friend of mine, spending a lot of time in the conservatory. Uh, University of Vermont's campus has some really nice display greenhouses. Um, so spending a lot of time in the conservatory there and just really developing a, an appreciation for and sort of a love of, of plants and horticulture. And I ended up leaving University of Vermont after two, two years. And my younger brother had started working at a local greenhouse nursery farm. He lined up a job for me. So I started working in the shrub yard there. A lot like Dan, I didn't know a thing about uh, retail plant sales. I didn't really know that much about plants other than the little that I'd learned at University of Vermont from taking a couple of plant propagation classes. Um, and interestingly enough, I had broken my foot uh, just a few weeks before the end of the semester, and so I, I couldn't really do a whole lot. Um, so when I showed up for my first day of work at the nursery, the, the nursery manager looked at me, and I was on my crutches, and he said, I don't know what to do with you, so I guess you're going to sit in the retail yard and just talk to customers. Um, and that turned into a fantastic experience, really gave me a, a great chance to you know, interact with the public, um, talk to them about their gardens, help them in choosing plants. And then it turned into a lot of, you know, developing knowledge, rainy days spent in the shrub shack, just kind of reading books and, and learning as much as I could. And so after a summer there, I, I decided to spend, uh, you know, to, to go back to school for horticulture and, and studied at University of Rhode Island. But I always had a vision of myself as an environmentalist. And that's, you know, that's how I live my life. It's, it's what I wanted to my, my work to reflect as well. I had a professor at University of Rhode Island, a woman named Sue Gordon, who ran a local nursery but was really into native plants. And that was the first time I'd really learned anything about native plants uh, was, was from her. And she was our, our plant materials instructor. And, and so I, I learned identification of, of woody species. I started to really learn and understand the forests around me and, you know, wanted to kind of share this knowledge with the public. And so I, I wound up pursuing a career in a field we call public horticulture, which is places like Garden in the Woods really are is they're public gardens. You know, they're cultural institutions. They share their knowledge. They inspire people to think about plants and to think about horticulture. So I pursued this avenue by studying at Longwood Gardens and the University of Delaware through the Longwood Graduate mm -hmm. Program. And then sort of shifted a little bit and fell into the world of education and public gardens. I was fortunate enough to be asked to 
run uh, the student programs or undergraduate programs at Longwood just after I finished out the graduate program there. At 25 years old, I think I was in charge of about 50, you know, high school through college uh, interns and, and two-year school of professional horticulture students. Um, did that for a few years. Uh, worked at a small place called Brookside Gardens, uh, right, really close to uh, Washington, D.C., all the while, you know, administering, running educational programs, but still trying to keep my hands dirty and, and work in the field of, of you know, more uh, plant-related horticulture at the same time. Um, and then, uh, you know, after a few years at Brookside, I had an opportunity to, to seek out a, a job that was both back home and back, um, you know, working uh, in the dirt, working in horticulture as the horticulture director for New England Wildflower Society. I sort of jumped at the opportunity and um, luckily enough the executive director of the society uh, was really looking for someone um, for the position who had a strong background in horticulture, sure, but also had a strong background in education. I've been here now for just about six years actually. So you're both there at the Garden in the Woods, and the Garden in the Woods, as we already mentioned, is the Botanic Garden and headquarters for the New England Wildflower Society. Now, the New England Wildflower Society is one of our country's oldest plant conservation groups. I would love you to go through a little bit of the history of the society, when it was founded, and its mission and history the New England Wildflower Society was founded around 1900. Around that time, the floriculture industry was starting to blossom. People were starting to really harvest native flora directly from the wild, cutting things like lady slippers and trilliums and others of our spring ephemerals and you know, really beautiful little uh, uh, woodland plants directly from the wild and either digging them or, or cutting them all together uh, and you know, bringing them into their gardens, bringing them into their homes. And the, the Wildflower Society was really formed as a group of concerned citizens who wanted to put a stop to this wholesale, essentially destruction of our of our native flora. And it was a small group. They really started outreach programs and initiatives to encourage people to, uh, rather than harvest plants directly from the wild, grow them at home. Or if they were really um, interested in harvesting them from the wild, then just take a you know a, a small bit as opposed to ravaging the entire population. We were volunteer-driven, volunteer-run until 1965 or thereabouts when we were given Garden in the Woods. Garden in the Woods was a garden that was developed by a guy named Will Curtis, who was a landscape architect. He studied at Cornell University, um, you know, grew up in New York, but then um, found himself living in uh, just outside of Boston in Framingham, Massachusetts. He had developed Garden in the Woods over the course of about 34 years at that point. He bought the property in 1931 from an old gravel company. It's this glacially carved landscape, rich gravel deposits, but also great little microclimates and lots of interesting topography. And Will Curtis was, one of his clients was a gentleman named Homer Lucas. And Homer Lucas was on the board of the, of the Wildflower Society. I like to say they hatched up this idea because he was getting on in years and didn't quite know what to do with it. And it, it just turned into a, you know, a brilliant um, relationships. So we moved out of Horticultural Hall in downtown Boston and moved to our own site there at, at Garden in the Woods in Framingham, um, which really gave us a home base where we could run conservation programs, where we could run educational programs. We built a classroom and the organization really blossomed from there. 
We now um, today have 20 to 25 full-time staff. During the growing season, we expand with a lot of part-time and seasonal staff um, to help run the garden, to help run the conservation programs uh, in our nursery. You know, we might expand up to 50 people in the, at the height of summer. Um, and our, our current mission statement, which was adopted by the board in 2010, is um, conserving and promoting the region's native plants to ensure healthy, biologically diverse landscapes. Over the course of the organization's history, you know, we've had a more horticultural bend at some points and had a more conservation bend at other points. We are the region's seed bank. We work with all the natural heritage programs in each of the six New England states to monitor rare and endangered plant populations all across the region. And the seed bank is essentially our insurance policy against climate change, against habitat destruction, against the loss of populations of those rare plants. With a group of more than 1,200 trained plant conservation volunteers, we monitor those rare plant populations, collect seed off of them, and then eventually put them into long-term storage in our seed bank so that we have the right germplasm to be able to reintroduce plants. We were part of the team that got a plant delisted from the endangered species, uh, the list of federally endangered species. It was a, a plant called Potentilla rubinziana that was indigenous to the top of Mount Washington, really found only there. That's the kind of work that we do on the conservation side. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with Mark Richardson and Dan Jaffe of the New England Wildflower Society. Mark is the executive director, and Dan is the chief propagator at the Society's public botanic garden known as Garden in the Woods, located in Framingham, Massachusetts. The two men also collaborated on the Society's new book, Native Plants for New England Gardens, out this year. We'll be back after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Oh my goodness, are these two men passionate. I love it. I love their articulate and almost breathless interest in sharing information about their passion, native plants, conservation, and native plant gardening. From their educational pathways, I'm really glad they found their way to the work they are now in wholeheartedly. One of the interesting things to me in their history of the New England Wildflower Society was the catalyst for the society's own beginnings in the early 1900s, when floristry was just taking off in New England's urban hubs, Boston, New York, Philadelphia. As a matter of fact, one of my maternal great-great-grandfathers was a florist of note on Fifth Avenue in New York City at about this time. Florists then were sourcing plants from the wild. The fact that someone, several someones, right then thought and acted on an instinct of, wait, this is not going to work. This is not a balanced give and take, and we are all going to lose. That instinct for conservation and safeguarding, even in the face of the potential short-term profits so lauded by industries of all kinds and all times, was really brave. And although we've come a long way in the world of legal protections and scientific research on ecosystem integrity, we still need a lot more of this kind of bravery. Bravery in standing up to commercial interests in the face of truly negligible social or environmental justice. Hmm. What can I do 
to be a lot more brave in protecting and advocating for the rights of plants, of places, and all people. I'd love to know your thoughts on this too. You can always leave a comment on this episode's post on Instagram or Facebook. I'm on Instagram daily and Facebook weekly. Join me there and say hi. I'd love to connect and hear your views on these things also. Okay, now back to our conversation with Mark and Dan of the New England Wildflower Society. On the horticulture side, we run Garden in the Woods, which is a, a place that's really meant to inspire people to use native plants in their home landscapes. We run a lot of educational programs from the garden and, and throughout the region. And we also grow plants. We grow thousands of plants every year, um, at mostly at our native plant nursery, uh, which is out in Western Mass, called Nasami Farm. The unique thing about the way that we grow plants is that we we try to grow everything from uh, seed that's been collected from the wild. So we find you know, thriving populations of common species that we would like to grow or that people have an interest in growing in their gardens or for ecological restoration projects. Local ecotypes are, are important for restoration projects and we think they're also important for gardens. I think one of the things this illustrates is that while the name the New England Wildflower Society sounds sort of little, it sounds sort of sweet. It is, in fact, a really impressive and wide-reaching advocacy and action organization across all of New England. It is on a par with the California Native Plant Society or the Sierra Club. It is, it is impressive, and it is across multiple fronts. That bringing together of ecological thinking and education and the general public and the home gardener, I think, is a trifecta of how we might be able to affect a successful, at least shift, in what's happening with our, our native plant communities and ecological regions and environment at large. And the fact that you've had at least one plant so far delisted is testament to the efficacy of this work. Through the course of what you were just describing to us, it's clear that the work of the organization has, in fact, matured and ebbed and flowed over time and is perhaps right now at a great moment of expansion and reach. And that is true through several things that are going on in the organization, but particularly through two new outreach projects. One is called the Pollinate New England Initiative, and the other is your new book that I want to get to as well. I think the two things work hand in hand, but let's start with the Pollinate New England Initiative and some of the catalysts for it and how what it is and how it's being rolled out over the course of this summer. I think it's you, Mark, that will tell us about Pollinate New England, and then we'll move to Dan to talk to us a little bit about the book as well. I wish we could claim that we're that uh, strategic. I think we try to be. <laughs> um, but but uh, yeah, the, the, the two actually had very little um, to do with each other initially, but they've certainly complemented each other. Um, mm -hmm. We uh, And I'll, I'll get to the background of the Pollinate New England program in a second, but um, this week marks the start of our uh, workshops, our hands-on installation workshops. Um, and so it's it's been so we've done two of them. We're doing another one tomorrow. Um, and you know, having a book to sell during the, the workshops and the lectures that follow them is um, is certainly nice. And I would like to have 
I'd like to think that um, it appears to the public as it appeared to you that this was all, you know, the grand plan, uh, but it just sort of happened that way. And it, it's, it's really nice that it did, but um, I, I, I can't claim credit for it. Um, so Pollinate New England is a, is a regional outreach program. Um, it's the first regional outreach program that we've really developed of this nature. Um, it's, a, it's a program that was, um, I'll say, hatched up by um, myself and our previous uh, public programs director, a woman named Jessica Pedersen. Um, we, we applied for a grant through the Institute of Museum and Library Services, which is a federal grant uh, making authority. They, they, you know, give money to educational programs and to cultural institutions. Um, a lot of times for, you know, curatorial work. They actually supported our uh, master plan effort, the master plan for Garden in the Woods that Dan mentioned earlier. At the time that we wrote the grant, which now is almost two almost two or three years ago, um, just in terms of the process, it takes a while for these things to, to, um, to come to be. Um, President Obama had uh, recently announced the million or the this national pollinator initiative. There's a lot of focus on, um, you know, pollinator decline, um, and a lot of it really was focused on the honeybee. Um, and you know, we're certainly concerned with the plight of the honeybee, but the reality is that honeybees are they're like domestic cattle. Um, you know, there's there's very little <laughs> chance that we'll ever lose honeybees altogether uh, because people really are responsible for maintaining them, right? If 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 honeybees mm -hmm. get a disease, then we can treat the disease. If we lose colonies, it's frustrating, it's expensive, and it definitely has an impact on our food system. But the wild plants in our area, the native plants in our area, probably won't miss the honeybee. So we really wanted to try to build a program that uh, taught people about issues revolving around pollinators um, and went beyond the honeybee. And we have developed an online course, uh, and the online course has about six units in it. It's a self-paced online course that's available for free for anyone that would like to take it. Um, it covers a range of different topics. It's really geared toward a very beginning level gardener. Um, in fact, we don't even say garden, we say yard. That seems to be a term that's, you know, more approachable or, or uh, I guess, easier for um, sort of beginning level people, you know, new homeowners or people that have never gardened before. It's all about how, how to make your yard more habitable to pollinators. Um, and it really covers, you know, a pretty broad range of, of things from, you know, choosing the appropriate site for pollinators, understanding who our pollinators are and why they're important, mm -hmm. choosing plants based on site conditions to building out a garden and maintaining that garden after after it's been planted, um, all the while trying to encourage people to think about, you know, planting a diversity of native species to support a diversity of pollinators, ensuring that they're not purchasing plants that have been treated with systemic insecticides, which are, mm -hmm. you know, toxic. And then to complement the online course, we also have a series of um, 12 workshops that we're doing all throughout the region. Um, our our original goal was to have two in each of the New England states. Um, we're, we were not able to find two sites in Maine that could accommodate a workshop. Um, so we're doing three in Massachusetts, two in all the other states, and just one in Maine. Um, and the workshops are for up to 15 people, and we plant a 150-square-foot pollinator garden over the course of a three-hour afternoon workshop. Uh, we have a, a workshop coordinator, a woman named Annie White, who just recently completed a PhD at the University of Vermont, um, really looking at 
the difference between in pollinator attractiveness and pollinator support of uh, natural species, natural species, native plants, you know, ones that are derived from wild populations um, versus mm -hmm. native plant cultivars. You know, her research was really innovative and she also had a background in history and uh, landscape architecture um, and had also run a series of workshops for another initiative to install rain gardens. And then each workshop is followed up by uh, an evening lecture. Um, Annie gives part of the lecture, I give part of the lecture, and that's open to as many people as can fit in the room. So, uh, you know, the two workshops and lectures that we've held earlier this week, um, we had about 50 or 60 people in each of them. One was in oh, Wellesley, great. Massachusetts, right at the police station. It's great. We, we, we tore out some of the lawn. Uh, the chief of police was, was willing uh, to let us tear out <laughs> 150 square feet of his you know, perfectly manicured lawn um, and put in a pollinator garden right right in downtown Wellesley for everyone to see. Um, and then the other place was in uh, Wells, Maine, which is just on the coast of, of Maine, the southern tip of Maine, really. Um, so it's mm -hmm. a program that's been very well received so far. We've, we've got, last I heard, we had about 250, 265 people registered for the online course. Uh, we're really hoping to have as many people take that as possible. Um, and then all told, you know, we'll be holding these workshops shops um, straight through the summer and into the fall. And yeah. it's a, a really great way to, you know, reach people where they are. We, we like to try to get into the communities that we serve in lots of different ways. And, and certainly this program has given us an opportunity to do that and to build gardens that will have a lasting legacy, not only educating people, but also um, supporting pollinators in these places where we're installing them. Um, so it's yeah. definitely a program we're very excited about. Um, and it's great that it's, you know, really complementary to the book um, that we just published as well. First of all, let me revisit the uh, question of yard or garden, because yeah. <laughs> my, my uncle would say without hesitation, prison has a yard, but our homes have gardens. So all joking aside, <laughs> I'll move away from that. Sure. These workshops, which were are all accompanied by lectures, and will each one of them produce a little bit of a public sort of demonstration garden site? Yeah, yeah. So each one, the lasting legacy of the workshop is a 150 square foot pollinator garden. Um, and you know, we like oh, to say great. if you're if you're a monarch caterpillar, right? If you're a monarch butterfly caterpillar, um, your habitat is a single milkweed plant. Um, and so a lot of times, you know, building that habitat for pollinators is as simple as building a small garden, um, like the mm -hmm. ones we're building. So yeah, yeah. Every little bit counts. Yep, very, exactly. very. Clearly. So, and of course, you know, as you, as you are talking, the best way to build a pollinator garden that is effective and draws on our native plants of a given area, um, one needs to know the native plants of a given area. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Mark Richardson and Dan Jaffe shared early in this program that their paths to professional and public horticulture were somewhat circuitous, and both experienced transformational moments working in landscape maintenance where they realized that our gardens should be more than pretty. They should be alive. We'll be right back after a break to hear more about these two men's collaborative work at the New England Wildflower Society. Stay with us. As we listen to this conversation with Mark and Dan this week, here where I garden, we are in summer. 
We're in our long summer run of periods of time over 100 degrees daily, 101, 103, 107. I can hear the people just north of me in the town of Reading kind of laughing at me and saying, ha, we're hotter than you. Hmm, this seasonal heat, this is normal for us, although no doubt increasing with climate change. This is a period of dormancy in our wild areas, much like winter in colder regions. And in dormancy, we can often fail to see the subtle beauty and strength, reserve and resilience that is in fact all around us in our native plants. The plants, as always, hold lessons for us in this season. The silver plants show us how to diminish heat, how to reflect the sun, the hairy plants show us how to hold water. Other plants drop their leaves, shed bark. They show us how to shed unnecessary mass. Many plants wilt in the heat of the day, showing us how to rest. Other plants bloom at night and come out to enjoy the cool of evenings, like the sacred white datura trumpets and the quiet crepuscular sphinx moths that pollinate them. They show us how to thrive in adversity and to live your life cycle to its fullest, no matter what. I thought about some of this while researching and reading Mark and Dan's new book, Native Plants for New England Gardens, specifically in the way they write about and have photographed the plants and genera they introduce readers to. They show a great respect for the whole life cycle and each stage of these plants they love. You get a sense of this holistic appreciation and respect in their conversation today, don't you? And there's something in this that's really important, I think. This sense of understanding beauty, not just as a big, bold moment of flowering or juicy fruit, but about the whole life process and interdependent systems of our plant companions on this earth. Integrating this recognition and appreciation into all that we engage in, it expands everything, doesn't it? Maybe this is the spaciousness we need to find that bravery we also need. Okay, now back to our conversation with Mark and Dan of the New England Wildflower Society and the great work they're doing. That brings us to your beautiful new book. Native Plants for New England Gardens, written by Mark Richardson and photographed by Dan Jaffe, is a fantastic little field guide to, and I shouldn't even say little, it is a fantastic field guide to native plants of the entire New England area. Each of, I believe, what do you have, 100 plants, is that correct? We were originally told to have 100 plants, and then we uh, we started to narrow down our list, I think ended up with about 700 plants, and then started coming up <laughs> with ways to cheat and decided we'd do 100 genera, of which there could be multiple species, and eventually just kind of gave up altogether and made sure we didn't have too many more than 100. But uh, I'm not sure what the final number of actual species in the book is. It's more than 100, though. Okay. So, Dan, tell us a little bit about the the history behind putting this book together, the process behind that very complex decision-making that must have been painful in deciding what made the book and what the book comprises in its final version. Sure. Um, so I, I think it kind of starts with 
other people's books. You know, we were kind of looking at the various different books and information, both book and non-book, you know, related out there. And, and kind of a lot of the other native plant books you know, fell into two major categories. There was the kind of um, ideological theory-based books, um, thing like uh, uh, Doug Tallamy's Bringing Nature Home. You know, that's it's a mm-hmm. fantastic book. Talks about the why people should care about native plants. You know, what value they have in the environment, things like that. Um, but a variety of those books, you know, unless you want a uh, you know a twelve hundred page book, most of those books were really about the theory, and there wasn't a ton of detail in there on specific plants. It was mostly about you know why native plants as an idea are really important. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you had you know books that really covered plant by plant sort of detail, how big it gets, where it wants to grow, you know, different kind of characteristics of the plant. Um, but most of those were based on kind of older definitions of native or, or just weren't really very regional. Um, a lot of kind of native to North America plant sort of books. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we've had this kind of evolving definition of native that you kind of alluded to earlier with the, the kind of idea of political lines versus, you know, ecoregions. Um, and we, we realized that there was a real lack in the, you know, kind of out there in the book world of really specific um, in our case, New England regional native plant books. Um, there were some really good books that covered a lot of the New England natives, but they also covered West Coast species and Southern species and everything else. And, and we found there was a kind of a lack and there was a call for this. Um, you know, as Mark mentioned earlier, we, we teach a lot of classes, we give a lot of lectures and and people would say, oh, you know, what, 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 where can I go for information? You know, where's the book? What, what is the resource? And, and we kind of realized that it was about time we, we kind of gave them that resource. Um, mm-hmm. So we, you know, we, we kind of went through the idea of, of trying to kind of build a book that really matched New England specifically, um, which gave us the kind of the rundown where eventually we started deciding we're going to put this book together and, and we're told, you know, 100 species, which got very difficult. Um, <laughs> we're both kind of, we're complete and utter plant nerds and trying to limit us is, is very difficult. Mark is actually very good at, at taking my, you know, 1500 word kind of you know, pages and putting them down into three sentences that still somehow say everything I was trying to put together. Um, I, on the other hand, you give me a small topic and I'll ramble on for hours. So we were trying to kind of organize the book and we, we broke it down into a couple different kind of groups that we wanted to make sure we covered. Um, we didn't want to just talk about the plants that everyone already knew, um, but at the same time, we didn't want to lose the kind of tried and true natives that we felt like people really should know about. Um, so mm-hmm. we kind of went for a, an equal kind of mix between plants that, you know, People should be growing because they work. Um, people who are kind of in the know with native species have been growing them for a long time and know that they work. Things like our wild geranium or the, the native um, running foam flower. These are plants that if, if you're a native plant enthusiast in our region, you know these plants. They're good plants. There's a reason why you know them already because they work very, very well. Um, but then we also wanted to include plants that nobody had heard of before or at least were really not well known but should be well known. Um, we didn't want to include every obscure plant that you can't find and it's really difficult to grow and this and that, but there's mm-hmm. a, a large number of species that, you know, really could be a tried and true plant, but they just haven't really been introduced in that way just yet. Um, things like the, uh, the, the our, um, flowering spurge, Euphorbia corallata, um, or Monarda punctata, the spotted bee bomb. Everyone knows this mm. kind of scarlet bee bomb because it's a wonderful plant. Um, no one's ever heard of this, this, you know, other species that grows in dry environments and doesn't ever suffer from powdery mildew and attracts copious amounts of pollinators. Um, and so we tried to make sure to include an equal amount of those plants as well. Um, we kind of threw all of that together and came up with that initial list that I mentioned of, I don't know, it was, you know, five, six, seven hundred plants on that initial list and started kind of narrowing it down. Um, 
me and Mark, you know, like any plant person, we, we both have our favorites and those kind of immediately got the, you know, the check mark. Um, we had a couple, uh, I think the nice way to put it would be discussions over certain plants that one or the other of us had little, you know, <laughs> less of a taste for. And um, in some cases, in many cases, we would agree. In other cases, you know, one of us would say, oh, you know, I don't, we don't need to talk about that plant. And the other one would say, no, 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 we can't write a book and not include, you know, Solomon's Eel. It's got to be in there. Um, and so we, we kind of went back and forth for a while trying to narrow down this list. Um, once we got it down to, you know, maybe 200 plants, then we brought it to other people. Um, you know, various coworkers, people that we knew that aren't really plant enthusiasts, but kind of like plants, or at least hear us ramble about them enough. Um, and started kind of just, you know, crowdsourcing a little bit to get an idea of what plants really could, you know, make the cut and which ones didn't have to. Um, eventually settled on the, you know, 100-ish genera idea that gave us the ability to talk about a lot of plants that we felt really needed to be there. Um, there are certain things like we we couldn't pick a single viburnum species. Um, you know, there was just, you name the environment and there's a wonderful viburnum that will grow there. And to try and just pick one just didn't make a lot of sense. Um, so we chose viburnum as a genus and covered, I don't know, five maybe species that, you know, made the cut on, on those. Um, and then in other cases, there was, you know, uh, plants that we really wanted to talk about butterfly milkweed and rose milkweed. Um, and while we were talking about those, we weren't going to leave out the common milkweed. It may not be the best garden plant for small spaces, um, but it's by no means a plant that shouldn't be talked about and, you know, kind of employed in other areas. Um, mm. uh, I think every roadside in New England should be covered in common milkweed. It might take over your garden, but I want it taking over my highway median. That's absolutely perfect for a plant like that. Um, mm -hmm. So trying to kind of narrow things down into a, a really specific regional book that kind of covers the plants that we think everyone in our area should be growing. Um, and then what kind of came about as we decided on plants is we realized there were certain themes that had to be included in addition to the plants themselves. And that's pretty much the first, I don't know, quarter, third of the book, which is talking about, you know, the definition of exactly what does native mean and what does it mean now? Because that's a, a definition that has evolved over time. And as we continue to study and learn more, we, we kind of our definition evolves as we go and as we keep updating it to try and keep this, you know, kind of as, as up to date as possible. We also talked about things like how you maintain an ecological garden. One of the big things we talk about is using ground covers in the place of mulch. Um, you know, no, no one no one ever got into gardening for love of mulch. Um, and when you start looking at these kind of <laughs> ground cover plants to play that role, all of a sudden you realize that you bring you know, you bring plants into the environment that act as competition against the would-be weeds and all of a sudden your mulch is much more effective and your garden looks a whole lot nicer and the more plants, the more pollinators. And it's just kind of, you know, if, if you pick the right plants, they, they really work quite wonderfully. All these themes came about as we started working with the specific plants. Um, you know, as soon as we decided to include the wild strawberry, all of a sudden we had to talk about lawns. You know, it's just these different plants that really brought up different topics that could not be left out. And it, it really came together quite nicely to the point where we, we found a pretty nice balance between talking about specific plants, how they grow, what to do with them, um, and then kind of jumping onto these different themes. Um, you know, when you're talking about an ephemeral, what is an ephemeral? How do you use an ephemeral? You know, why is it a good thing that it goes dormant in the summer instead of a, oh, this plant's gone dormant, now I've got a hole in my garden. Um, so all of this came together wonderfully and, and is now the book that we've got in front of us. For the record, as somebody who owns a lot of garden books, and I have a lot of family in the Northeast. I went to school there, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, the works. This is a great collection 
of plant stories and plant photographs, and you have very effectively, as you were describing, embedded into each plant description multiple plant references and multiple sort of technique and methodology references that make a single plant entry really expansive. So I was really happy to see the way you laid out each entry, the way you photographed each entry, by the way. And I think the more we have home gardeners that are interested in this topic, but that don't necessarily want to become, you know, the plant nerds that some of us might be and don't want to become botanists. This is a really great handbook, especially if each of the plants is vetted as being available somewhere in New England for these home gardeners to find, purchase, and then work with in the garden. And your maintenance and care recommendations for each entry was likewise very helpful. Not so specific that it took up the whole page, but very helpful. So um, I'm taking this as a house present to my cousin in Rhode Island next week, so you know. That's awesome. Um, oh, that's great. Thank you. I can hear the, the passion and the energy from both of you in terms of both your love of these plants, your love of this work, and these two particular projects. When you look back over the process you've been through to put together Pollinate New England to put together this new resource for home gardeners. And just the history of the society that stands behind that and your current work. What are the big reasons why this is important to you personally as, as people, as gardeners in this world? Let's start with you, Dan. Well, I, th I think for me, um, it kind of falls back on the fact that I, I want, um, I like the idea that I'm doing good in the world. You know, at the end of every day, I can feel like I'm actually making the world a little bit of a better place. And in this case, it's really about bringing life into the landscape. Um, you know, I look at the kind of typical American lawn, and it's just a dead zone. Um, and I look at a lot of the gardens that I used to create back when I didn't know anything about this kind of ecological stuff. And it was pretty much, you know, red mulch and a whole bunch of meatballs and rocket chips of all these non-native plants pruned into oblivion. Um, you know, just these kind of things that were very sterile sites. There was nothing alive there. Um, and then I look at the gardens that we're creating now and the, the places that are not gardens but are being you know, worked on in one way or another. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, your roadsides, your highway medians, a parking lot island full of sumac, whatever it might be. And I can see the, the native insects interacting with the native plants. And I can, you know, think this is a really, really cool Promethea moth caterpillar. And then I see the bird come down and eat that caterpillar. And I think, okay, well, the caterpillar was cool, but now the bird's got a meal and it's going to feed its young. And it's, you know, you're, the, the, you know, native plants are the basis of the ecosystem and they feed everything that kind of moves up those trophic levels. So when you're putting native plants in the environment, you're bringing life onto the landscape. You're kind of doing good in the world, which is something that, that's really important to me. Um, and there's a lot of, if you know, as you read through the book, you'll see there's, there's a lot of kind of specific little anecdotes amongst these different plants that kind of bring out other topics that, that we find very important. One of my personal things is I've I really like the idea of being connected to my food chain as much as possible. And you probably realize there's a lot of kind of talk of edible species in the book. Yes. Um, and yeah. I've, I've always loved the idea that 
Um, you know what? At, for a while, I thought I needed my, my edible garden, and then I separately needed my pollinator garden. And then when I started kind of really, you know, getting into natives and, and learning more about them, I realized that not only are do the edible plants not have to be annuals, but be long-lived, low-maintenance perennials, um, but I could eat every single blueberry off of that blueberry bush and still know that I am feeding the bumblebees with wonderful flowers in the spring, feeding something like 70 or 80 different Lepidopteran species, our, our butterflies and moths, in the caterpillar stage um, via those leaves. Um, I could then still eat all the berries in the summer. Um, also, you know, just because I like them, I'll leave plenty for the birds, but I'm, I'm eating plenty knowing that I'm giving the birds insect protein with those leaves. I've got a plant that turns vibrant red in the fall and looks much better than the burning bush that used to be in its place before I yanked it out and put in the, the blueberry. You know, these this can be, you know, you can kind of have everything. When you work with native plants, you really don't have to give up anything. Um, we've got plants that will thrive in any environment that you can name in, in our, you know, if you're picking plants native to the region, there are plants that will grow in any spot you're looking at. Um, they can be extremely low maintenance. They can be good for the environment. They can feed us. They can look nice. They can kind of do everything. Um, and that's yeah. that's something that's kind of hard to find. You know, when, when people come into the the nursery and say i want a plant that can do everything all of a sudden i got a whole bunch of plants that can do it um you know we might have to decide exactly what they mean by do everything but at least with my <laughs> definition they, they can um you know yeah. and, and there's a lot that these plants have to offer um and so that's really kind of what 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 it's for i, I need a garden that's more than just pretty um i need to know that i'm i'm bringing life onto the landscape um and I, I really have been pushing as much as possible to to get, uh, you know, as, as important as I think native plant gardens are, I think it's also important to think of native plants outside of garden settings. Um, you know, I, I love walking into, you know, a, a, a beautiful meadow or a beautiful woodland of which there are many around us. But, I'm, you know, I look out the windows and I see these kind of gardens that I think could really just be described as mulch gardens. Um, you know, a whole bunch of dyed mulch, a, a straight line of, you know, a couple non-native grasses and a couple, you know, crimson king maples and think we could be planting natives right there um, everywhere. Mm -hmm. Drainage ditches, you know, roadsides, uh, you know, e every spot that I'm thinking of, abandoned lots in the middle of, you know, Boston. We can we can be planting plants absolutely everywhere um, and we can kind of look at this as, as something more than just gardens, but the whole entire landscape. Yes. Mark. Yeah, I, I, I would echo a lot of what Dan had to say. Um, I think we're, you know, we're obviously both really passionate about sharing our love for, for plants with people. And that's a big part of the reason that we took on, you know, both the Pollinate New England program and, and the book right, the big book project as well. Um, for me, I mean, I, I, I came into horticulture, um, you know, from an environmental standpoint, but then really developed a love for beauty and a love for aesthetics. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, I think, you know, one of the things that's um, most exciting to me is to share people, share with people just the, the sheer beauty of a lot of the native species that we work with. Um, and, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, I think a lot of native plant horticulture has, um, has trended toward much more wild than it, uh, than I think the, the general public is really accepting of. And so I think one of the things that I really try to do is, is, um, encourage people to think about using, you know, really garden friendly, um, garden appropriate native species in their landscapes. 
and, and people really respond to that. The general public responds uh, a lot more to that um, and try to convert some of the you know more conventional, more traditional um, garden types um, into using native species because they're beautiful and not worrying too much about uh, you know whether they're supporting pollinators or you know what beneficial insects might be feeding on them and you know sort of looking that, at that as a byproduct. So I think in addition to all the the you know ecosystem support that native plants offer, they're also just I mean there's some fantastically beautiful plants and I, I think that's one of the things that comes across in the book uh, is you know Dan's got just a tremendous eye um, and I think that really you know he he really I think just has a great um, uh, technique for showcasing the you know the minor details um, that people oftentimes overlook you know one of my favorite images in the book is of uh, is the one picture we chose to use for geranium maculatum it's the it's the mm -hmm. fruit it's the you know the um and it's the seed beautiful. oh it's, it's a beautiful shot of that and, yeah yeah, and I and you know it's that kind of subtle beauty that that oftentimes gets overlooked. Um, it also oftentimes gets cut back, right? And so one of the things that we really try to encourage people to do is appreciate plants through their whole life cycle and not cut things back until you really need to. Uh, you know, not only is that more supportive of pollinators uh, and other beneficial insects, but you also get to you know witness um, things like that. You get to see you know dried seed heads through the winter. You get to see birds mm -hmm. eating the seeds through the winter and you also get to appreciate you know the richness of of the the color brown spectrum um, and so I, I think there are a lot of uh, you know great aesthetic reasons to use native plants as well and I, I think that's one of the things that I'm I'm really quite passionate about um, I also one of the one of the things that I didn't mention earlier when I was talking about the pollinate New England program is um, one of the one of the other pieces to that program is this new database that we developed, um, and it's called Plant Finder. Uh, you can find it at plantfinder.newenglandwild.org, um, and it's a fantastic way to research um, information about which plants are native to the ecoregions. It's about four times as many plants as you find in the book, um, and oh, it's uh, and you know great cultural information, great images. Um, so I, I wanted to mention that as well. It's another great. It's another uh, important tool for helping people to develop, uh, you know, a plant palette that will work um, for their site conditions and for uh, for what they're looking for for their garden. And and so it's a it's those kinds of things that I get really excited about. It's sharing our knowledge and our know-how um, in lots of different ways with as many different people as we can, um, so that we can build you know ecologically friendly, supportive gardens that are also just downright beautiful. Thank you both for being guests on the program today. It was a pleasure to speak with you both, and I'm very excited about all of these resources. The Pollinate New England program, the new Native Plants for New England Gardens book, and the database. Thank you. Hey, right back at you. Thanks yeah, this, so much for having us. This was a pleasure. Thank you. The New England Wildflower Society is one of the oldest native plant conservation organizations in the United States. Their work conserves native plants in the wild and encourages gardeners and landscape professionals to choose natives when they plant outdoor spaces, particularly plants grown from local seeds harvested sustainably in the wild. Mark Richardson serves as executive director at the New England Wildflower Society's Botanic Garden in the Woods, and Dan Jaffe serves as chief propagator. 
the two men collaborated on the new book, Native Plants for New England Gardens. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways that people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. To subscribe to the Cultivating Place podcast so that you never miss a conversation, as well as to read more about and see many photos from the New England Wildflower Society, head over to cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.